brought it on yourselves. Everything would have come right if you'd only left me alone. You've driven me near madness with your peering through the keyholes and gaping through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. There's a souvenir for you. And one for you. I'll show you who I am and what I am. <laughs> this is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today we're doing another make-remake episode. This time we are tackling the 1933 version of The Invisible Man and the 2020 version of the same film. And joining me on this episode is Callum McNabb, who is the host of the Scare Traducing podcast. Callum, thank you so much for joining me today. All right. Thank you for having me. I figured you were the perfect guy to have on for this because you talk about all things horror movie and you usually like break down an entire anthology of movies. And this is kind of similar, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, we're uh, obviously another horror movie podcast. Uh, the kind of gimmick we do is uh, horror, as you said, franchises, although like our what we class as a franchise, I think, is kind of lax and loose. We did uh, we did Suspiria, which is two movies, and that's not really a franchise. It's like a make-remake, which is kind of what this is. So, yeah, I've, I'm willing to talk about this. It gave me an excuse to watch the, the, the 1933 version, which I'd never seen before. So, why not? Interesting. Uh, are you familiar with, like, a lot of the, the old-school Universal monster movies, or is that sort of a blind spot for you? No. Yeah, oh, it's a, oh, it's definitely a blind spot. That was kind of so. Uh, I host the podcast with my wife, and the the reason we decided to do it is we both love horror movies, and we realized that we had a lot of blind spots in horror franchises. Like we'd have seen the original Halloween, but none of the rest of them, and she'd seen a couple of the Chucky movies, and I hadn't seen any of them. And so we were like, wait a minute, why not watch like all these franchises from start to finish and just cover them and just see, you know. Do we like them? Are there any gems? You know, you know, fifth, sixth movie deep. So universal horror movies from like the 30s. Nah, I, I hadn't seen any of them. Frankenstein, it's not. Yeah, I feel like that could be an entire series for you. If you look at like all the, the Dracula movies or something like that. <laughs> it, it might be in the future because we're, we're having a debate at the moment. I really want to do Alien at some point and she's not into it. So... <laughs> Interesting. Well, I've only seen the first one, so if you end up doing uh, the rest of the mail, give me an excuse to actually sit down and watch more than just Alien. Oh, definitely. Aliens is the best, in my opinion. Okay, good to know. Um, <laughs> so for anyone that's listened to this before, you probably know what the Make Remake is, but if you haven't, it's pretty simple. You take an original, you take a remake, and it's not so much looking at which movie is better or which one uh, is worse, things like that. It's just talking about how do these movies tackle the same story and treat it differently or similarly. Uh, in the past, I've done movies such as uh, Wicker Park, uh, Sa The Seven Samurai, um, old boy, old boy, and a few others, and uh, so this is going to be an interesting one. The original 1933 um, 
Invisible Man, directed by James Whale, who's most famous for doing Frankenstein as well. And it, this is interesting because this movie has a bit more of a comedic edge than the other universal monster movies of its time. And even in general for horror movies, uh, it was interesting. I've seen this one only once before, and the comedy doesn't fully land all the time. How did that aspect hit you? It was surprising. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I kind of thought maybe with it being from the 30s, some of the stuff's not going to hold up. Uh, so, like, I was watching it going, okay, you know, some of it's a bit goofy, but then I've read that apparently some of it's intentional, so I was like, well, is that, does, is you, are all the Universal Horror movies like that? And apparently they're not. So, I don't know, it just, some of the jokes landed and some of them didn't. Most of the, po- most of the point where, like, the Invisible Man, I didn't quite get across the movie whether he's supposed to be incredibly terrifying or like a bit of a ragamuffin (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's definitely a little bit hard to tell at times uh i i find it seemed like most of the humor tried to come from the innkeeper which kind of came across as a little shrill at this point rewatching it oh my god are you talking about the the shrieking yes yeah that was um i don't know if you've ever seen there's a there's an an Irish TV comedy from the the, the mid nineties called Father Ted, and there's a a housekeeper in that, Mrs Doyle, and that was all me and uh, me and Isella we were watching it together. That was all we could talk about was watching it. It was like she reminds us of you know the housekeeper in a broad comedy, mm. and it's in a horror movie or a horror classic. That that's a show with um, Graham Norton, right? He's in a couple of episodes, yeah, okay. he is. That's but like, it's it's so broad, and so to find it in like a Universal classic was, it. I, I assume it's meant to be comedic. Like, there's is there any other way to take it? I, I don't think there is. No, I, I think you have to because the, that character in specific. But then there's also the the sort of the ineptitude of of most of the bystanders, whether the, the townspeople or the police. Uh, everyone is sort of over the top, incompetent at everything that they do for the most part. Uh, it's you have to take it as funny, <laughs> whether or not you still laugh today. Yeah, I, I suppose- think that's the only thing. Yeah, I suppose I suppose that's true. Um, it was just as I say, like we put it on and we're like, right, you know, because there are some like I've seen uh, Nosferatu, which is I believe I believe is before this because it's silent. That still kind of creeps me out a little bit. There's some images in that, whereas this one I was just like, okay, I assume like I, for this one I just was marvelled by the technology for the time period more than it being scary or tense. Like it, the that didn't hold up for me. Yeah, I think that's actually a great starting point is the special effects, the similarities in this and how they sort of get across this aspect of someone being visible. Now, before Warren, we're we're not going to completely spoil everything, but there's going to be some spoiler talk. So if you've not seen the new 2020 Invisible Man, uh, please check back later. Uh, But there's... I'm sorry if you haven't seen the 1933 movie by now. I don't think there's much we can do about that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the yeah, no, effects, I, no excuses. Yeah, so the special effects for this movie, I thought for both of them were very interesting. They they utilize some similar techniques done in very different ways. Uh, there's one moment in particular where I really realized the direct homage that it was doing, where. Uh, in the original film, you have the the mad scientist, Dr. Jack, who sits down on a chair and you sort of see the chair decompress around where his like butt and legs would be in the chair. And then they do the exact same thing in the new film 
when um, Adrian sits down in the lounge chair, you basically see the the crevice of where he is supposed to be sitting, and, and things like that. I found really interesting where they're kind of duplicating the the movement of objects in a physical space to indicate that someone is there, while doing their own different ways of not showing the actual performer. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's 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 such an ingenious and small sort of way to do it. Like, where, as you say, it's not something floating off in the middle of the room. It's just a, a chair and, like, a crevice that means someone's sitting in it. Um, and I feel like it could have been more like that, like, the, especially the 1933 version. But I, I don't know if audiences maybe wanted maybe, you know, the grander stuff. But the the chair bit, I like it. I thought it was done really well. I even think... Like the first time you see him with the bandage off his face, I I actually went like whoa out loud because I was like I didn't expect it to be that good. I honestly didn't think it was going to be that good, and it it it's impressive for 1933. It's really impressive. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I read on the IMDb trivia how they went about making him invisible, where uh, Claude Rains, the, the actor, was wearing a black velvet suit, and then he was shot on a black velvet background, and then that was superimposed over the other scenes. And so the where you're talking about where he's taking off his bandage, he's dressed in this, like, what would be a prototype of a green suit um, and then removing the layers and suddenly it disappears. And, and it's just so interesting to kind of see how they did that. And like, you can see there, there's a few scenes like when you see um, the shirt just running in the background where that's kind of a little ridiculous. You could see the outline of, of the whole performer's body, but for the most part you can still buy into the believability that this person is invisible. Yeah, I mean, you have to, you know, take it with a pinch of salt that, it, it, you know, this is nearly what, this is what, 90 years old or just under that? Mm. You've got to accept that it's not going to be tremendous from start to finish. But there, as I say, there were times where I actually, like, out loud was like, that is very good. Mm-hmm. And I just had to, you know, just had to acknowledge it. And then it seems like in the new film... I think they probably tried to do more without the performer actually being on screen and rely more on Elizabeth Moss's character to act out where um, Adrian was supposed to be. So using camera movements and looking around, there are, of course, shots where like knives get picked up and things like that. But for the most part, it looks like they tried to do more with less, which probably works out better in that way we're not left being like oh yeah i can kind of see the outline or the cgi is a little dodgy in a few years it's going to look a little bit dated things like that so i think using camera tricks definitely makes it look better definitely you're preaching to the choir like i i loved the new one the the 2020 version and um those shots like where the camera just pans over to the corner of a room and there's nothing there uh, I, it's so tense i loved it where it's not like how, how do i try and phrase this it's not like where is he in the room and it, it gets you thinking like is he actually in the room to begin with it's so tense i love it i love all those shots 
and there's so many of them yeah and they did a good job from from the very opening scene of setting that up so that way you think it's a normal thing there you know there's different sequences where you see one character leave and the camera pans away to an empty hallway and then later the character walks through it and so that way we're sort of conditioned to recognize that shot whereas later in the film they do the exact same thing and instead of someone walking into the screen we're led to believe that the invisible man is already there in that shot Exactly. Um, I've seen like Twitter threads online or people talking online as like which shots is the Invisible Man quote unquote actually in or which ones is he not. I don't care about that stuff. It just every single one of those empty rooms or empty hallways, every single one of them, like my heart was racing. It's so tense. Mm -hmm. I loved it. I, yeah. I, I can't praise it enough. Lee Wanell's direction is so good. <laughs> there, there's one scene in particular where I, I also don't really care too much the debate about where he's in the shot or not, but the, there's the scene where uh, she's sitting on the floor with the knife and basically has an entire monologue basically asking, why are you doing this to me? I think that's the one moment in the movie where I don't actually believe that he's there. I think that's more her actually talking to herself and trying to uh, play this scenario out than actually giving a speech to someone else. I think that's the only time where it really matters if he's there or not. Interesting. I'd, I'd honestly need to watch it again to, to take that on board because like every, every single time, the first time I saw it, I was just like, he's there, he's there, 100% he's there. Um, I didn't even consider that he wasn't there. So I need to watch it again and, and see whether or not, because obviously she, well, in the, the 2020 version, is uh, someone who's lived with abuse and is really struggling to, to, to deal with this. And then you've got someone who's continuing to abuse someone without being there. It's It's unbelievable. Like, it's just so, it kind of puts you in the mindset. I, I, I don't want to put it, quite as you know heavy as that but it, it makes you empathize more like you sort of see i'm rambling now but the, the idea that he's dead the the invisible man or is, is adrian his name is in the new one so he's supposed to have died and then it's like oh well he's dead so it's fine but you see that she she's not fine immediately like she it's, she's obviously going to live with this you know for a few months years afterwards and the idea that he is invisible and tormenting her is just makes it even worse. Um, so I need to watch it again to decide whether or not she's just sort of, you know, using it as a coping mechanism or is she actually trying to, to, to taunt him or, or, to, or talk him out. Yeah. Uh, so what other similarities did you see between these two films? So the, the other ones I saw were that I liked how... The Invisible Man in the, well, in the new one, obviously, I, I think I've tried to explain how dangerous it felt. In the old one, he is a threat. I know he's kind of goofy at stuff, but he, but people die because of him. Mm -hmm. So I like how the, you know, they don't skimp on, on that. It's supposed to be a horror movie about a guy who's gone crazy because of this experiment. And it's not just him running around stealing people's hats like, he kills people in the 1933 version. So I, I, I kind of liked how both, not protagonists, antagonists, sorry, were dangerous. Yeah, there's definitely a body count to both of these films. Uh, for the most part, the, in, the, in the original one, it seems pretty harmless until he goes on a bit of a killing spree about three quarters of the way through. 
which includes derailing a train that we're told a hundred people on board end up dying. And that's the, that's the one part that kind of sticks out from the rest of the film, because for the most part, he's sort of harmless with the exception of when there's a search party going on, he apparently throws a few people down mountainsides and things like that. Um, and of course his, uh, his old partner, he also ends up killing him as well. So there's, so there's definitely a murder, creepiness element to that and and i actually found interesting is it seemed like there was less murder involved in the new version uh definitely a lot more graphic because you can show blood and things like that but there's there's nothing as big as the the train sequence it seemed like the violence was a lot more contained to the the central character of the story whereas uh the original was more about going on a spree yeah uh so the, the yeah the original the invisible man is sort of like uh kind of like a world domination domination sort of that's what that's his plan or that's what he sort of says his plan's going to be so it seems to encompass a lot more and you know he acts on that with the train like you said whereas the new one is specifically one man trying to torment one woman that you know it you know trickles out into involving police officers etc mm-hmm. but it is as you say it is more contained that to me works better as a horror story because it allows me to just empathize with one person and what they're going through. The new one, uh, sorry, the old one, like the train sequence comes out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just it's just kind of baffling because as I say, like he's throwing cops around, he's sort of twirling them around in midair and then throws them, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he der- derails a train. Yeah, and I think I think that's one thing that isn't clear enough in the second film. In the in the original one, uh, we learn that by he, he's a, a chemist, so he makes this serum that makes his skin invisible. And they talk about how uh, it was this Indian root or something like that that they injected it into animals, and it turns their fur white. And then he was able to take it to the next step to make it invisible. And we learn through this serum that it causes him to go mad uh the same thing happened in the animal testing but it also gives him super strength and that's the one thing that isn't really discussed at all in the new version uh we already know that he's an abusive person but we don't know is this a guy that works out on the regular or when he puts on this suit does he somehow have like iron man capabilities where he becomes a lot stronger and a martial arts expert uh and how does it affect his temperament as well so those are two things that aren't they're left a little bit more open-ended where i think if you've seen the original you can sort of put those same characteristics on the new invisible man but if you haven't seen the original you just have to take at your word that his insanity or his what he's doing is completely on the fact that he is an abusive person and his strength comes from the fact that he probably already was a strong person. Yeah, that, that's how I took it when I saw it. I hadn't seen the, the original until only a couple of days ago. So when I saw the 2020 film, I had taken it as, you know, it's an extension of him being already an abusive person. It's not like this is what's caused it. It's that he is like that and he's using this to extend that further. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I also liked, um, you had shared with me one of, one of the similarities was the, this idea of authoritarian distrust, especially towards police officers where they're not believing the, the victims of, of what's happening. Um, 
and they go about them in different ways, but they're still sort of around the same way. It seems like in the original one, uh, a sm only a small group of people are, are disbelievers. And then as more people see it, people actually seem to believe the story. Whereas in the, in the new version, everyone is a skeptic until they actually come in contact with the, the invisible man. Yeah, um, because, you know, you would be a skeptic if somebody came up to you and said that person who died, they're alive now and invisible. You would be like, mm, OK, you know, you want to do the best for this person, but I don't quite believe your story. Um, for example, it, it, a funny story. Um, when I saw the new one, I went into work like a day or two afterwards before, you know, everything shut down. and. One of my colleagues who doesn't like horror films was like, oh, did you see that film? Yes. What did you think of it? And I told him, and then he said, just spoil it for me. I, I don't want to know, like, I'm not going to go and see it. I want to know what happens. I told him, and he was like, but is the guy actually invisible? And I said, yes, he is. And he was like, wow, you must have a, a big imagination to, you know, to sit through that. And I was like, <laughs> if you're struggling with someone being invisible in a movie called The Invisible Man, you know, it's really easy to buy into people not believing this person's story. <laughs> yeah, we we haven't been to Mars yet. We haven't, you know, we don't have superheroes. <laughs> we don't have whatever. Like, I think at every point in a movie, you need a certain level of disbelief. I know, it just, it blew me away. So I was like, yeah, I could watch that movie again. And then if someone says like, why don't they believe her? I'm like, you didn't even believe the guy was invisible in The Invisible Man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I think these movies are are actually more different than they're similar. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the differences between these two films. What happened to him? Adrian's dead. Listen, you're getting your freedom back, okay? He said that wherever I went, he would find me. Walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. Adrian is dead. He's not dead. He has figured out a way to be invisible. So earlier we talked about the similarities, especially the, the special effects, the body count, the, the distrust of people, things like that. But there's a lot more differences going on. And I think uh, the first one to kind of talk about is the means of invisibility. I talked about how in the original one, Dr. Jack is a chemist and he creates this serum. Whereas in the new movie, Adrian is an optical engineer. So it's sort of throwing out this science that is incredibly made up. We obviously know that things with nanotechnology and, and really small cameras and things like that can definitely change the world that we're in because we actually see that. You know, you go to uh, stadiums and you see the crazy light shows that they can put on the field or, or things like that or at concerts. And so... Adrian builds this bodysuit that is completely made up of cameras and basically is projecting an image of what's in front and behind him to give this illusion of invisibility to make it more in line with today's world. So they managed to get to the same path, but take it in very different ways. Do you think that they achieved both the goal of what they needed to for their times and that they were both believable? Uh, yeah, I mean, well further to the story that I told about, you know, suspension of disbelief. For both of them, it makes sense to me. You know, it's, it's you know, uh, chemistry gone wrong or, or right, if that's what he had wanted. 
I don't know enough about chemistry to know whether or not that's you know accurate. And then in the new one, it's nanotechnology, like you said, being used in a way that I have no way to to know whether or not that's a realistic possibility down the road. You just got to you've just got to buy it, and I'm willing to buy it in both cases. I wonder if the 1933 version had something to do with what was going on socially at the time, if there was sort of this fear of advancing science and their sort of distrust, sort of like how we get a lot of um, Cold War era movies where there it's, you know, um, an analogy for what's going on in the world. And so you get different monster movies and horror movies like that. I wonder if this idea of mad science was the inspiration behind it. Obviously I know HG Wells's novel is significantly older than, than the movie. I think it came out in the late 1800s, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that was what the impetus of the movie was. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, the mad scientist archetype is probably, I don't know how many hundreds of years old. So I'm willing to believe that as science advanced, people are always willing to make more and more stories because you've got Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's a that's a science experiment gone wrong, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, for the time, I'm sure that was because they're not in 1933. They're not going to say it's a suit of nanotechnology cameras because <laughs> they don't have anything remotely close to that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I bought it both times. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, I thought another interesting aspect was uh, their use of assistance or, or, or how that goes about. In the original one, um, the scientist Jack, he has a, an equal, a partner, and then a mentor as well. And they're sort of the, the only people that can figure out how this whole process works. And he ends up kidnapping his partner, a guy named Arthur, under the guise of helping him find the antidote to be able to become visible again because he's unfortunately stuck as invisible and he needs to figure out the science behind it. And that's the whole that's how the whole movie starts out in this small town where he needs privacy to work. Uh, and then he wants to eventually partner with this guy so that way they can switch back and forth between being visible and invisible and it's this really more convoluted plot that Arthur wants nothing to do with and ends up being part of his downfall. Uh, but then in the remake, I don't want to spoil too much about this, but uh, Adrian has a brother, Tom, who's a lawyer who seems to be more in the know of the situation than we are led to believe. And it makes it look like they're probably involved in ways that the original completely differs from. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know how much, you want to go into because of spoiler territory but in the the 1933 version the the assistant is obviously kind of held we see him at least being held captive uh, and and trying to not escape but like he, he tries to walk out the front door and jack sees him and he says i told you to go into the the, the dining room or wherever and he gets caught a couple of times so you know it's something that he's actively trying to put an end to as quickly as possible and i think jack is aware of this and that's what makes it turn out the way it does for a movie that i find isn't overly suspenseful i found that was the those scenes of the two of them together were probably the most suspenseful for me definitely i would 100 percent agree um you know it gives the chance to for jack to to sort of wax lyrical about his global plans and whatever which is you know that's what the movie's all about really but it also gives you the counterpoint of his assistant who 
clearly doesn't want to be there and is clearly scared of what this man is capable of and represents. But, you know, he can't do anything because he can't, well, he can see him when he's in the bandages, but when he's not in the bandages, you know, all bets are off. Mm-hmm. I think we can also uh, talk about the the Adrian and Tom relationship a little bit because it seems from the get-go that there's a little bit of antagonizing Tom has towards Celia when there's the will reading going on and uh, him not believing her when she's trying to say that Adrian is still alive and things like that, where it definitely sort of seems, I don't know if it's a family of abusers or whatever they are but whatever it is these two brothers seem to be sort of cut from the same cloth yeah i mean it, it plays it the the very first time i think you see him is the the will reading as you say and uh he mentions that this is something that adrian has, has done similar things to him. like i understand where you're coming from because i grew up with this guy and i know that this guy is a monster or that this guy is you know got these violent tendencies and so it, it gives you a sort of way in to go oh she, maybe she's not alone here maybe she's got someone she can talk to or whatever and then the movie you know goes down its little path that it does yeah that, that's interesting they it definitely does a bit of a bait and switch there that uh, kind of gets revealed more how much he's involved in this plan of invisibility that uh, I think is the one thing that I, I don't really want to go further into because that was the the biggest surprise for me is, is sort of that reveal. Yeah, uh, I would agree with you. Um, but I, I think the movie probably still works regardless of whether or not you know that because it's, it's a movie about an invisible man tormenting, you know, his ex-girlfriend. And you you still got scenes of pure suspense whether or not you know Who's in it? Who's not? Who's you know being stalked? Who's not? Mm-hmm. It still works, I think. Well, what other differences did you see in this these two films? Well, obviously, the as I said, the the nineteen thirty three version, in my opinion, sort of played a more of a where did he go sort of game, where it's like you know he takes off the bandages and then you're like oh where's he gone? He's here, but where is he? Whereas the twenty twenty version is 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 he even here? It sort of makes you more paranoid. Mm-hmm. Those, that was a difference in sort of tone and style. Uh, and the other one was obviously that his romance in the 1933 version, it appears genuine. Like he, I think the last shot is with him dying. Oh, sorry if anyone's not seen it. It's, <laughs> but it's uh, him dying and uh, his his lover is, is by his bedside. That's not the case in the new one. No, yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and and they seem to try to uh, make a point in the original film that she might be the key to stopping him, and so she tries to talk him out of whatever crazy scheme he has going on, and it seems like that might actually work a little bit until the police arrive, and of course that throws it off. But the very end, it sort of seems that he realizes maybe what he was inflicting on other people and she was the one to sort of like bring him back down. Um, I'm, I'm not too worried about spoiling the 1933 version. Uh, have you seen, yeah. <laughs> have you seen uh, Psycho? 
Psycho, the Alfred Hitchcock film, yes. yes. And the, the final shot in the film actually reminds me a bit of Psycho because uh, he's dying in the bed and then he's invisible and then you see just his skull and then the rest of his body sort of magically reappears now that he has no life in him. Um, and it sort of reminded me of the, the final shot of Psycho where we see uh, the skull over Norman Bates' face in, when he's in the police station. Like as it cross-dissolves? Yes. Uh, yeah, it's not something... It's not something I thought of at the time, but now that you point it out, it seems incredibly obvious. Like, I don't know, is that maybe something Hitchcock was paying homage to? Maybe it was, but it's definitely there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, I, I think we could talk a little bit more about the the sort of relationship that Cecilia has with Adrian and, and really the fact that the new movie takes place completely from Cecilia's perspective. I don't think we get any scenes where she is not the uh, the person who we're seeing their viewpoint from. Is that correct? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so either. So I think this will actually make the movie age well as a bit of a, a time capsule of both what's going on in society today and how we are moving forward in, in believing victims and survivors and, and sort of how that goes. And I think that's really going to go a long way because the movie really does end in a hopeful note. And hopefully that's uh, a message that we can use to move forward with as well. Definitely. Um, as I say, it, it feels vital to today's audiences. I don't want to repeat myself, but I am. Um, but it's definitely a hopeful ending. Uh, it's, you know, it goes a little bit exploitation actiony towards the, you know, the third act, but you get that where at the end where the person you want to see do X, Y, and Z gets the chance to do X, Y, and Z, which is obviously, sadly, not the case always in life, but movies give you the chance to live those fantasies. And, you know, after an hour and a half or so of pure tension, it it, it gives you the chance to just, you know, stand up and go, oh, well, yes, I like how everything turned out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do see some similarities with maybe the exploitation era films as far as revenge seeking uh, and the way they kind of go about that. But they do it in a very different way that it doesn't seem as exploitative as some of those movies might have been. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not. Like you know, the, the camera's always on Cecilia's side and it never feels like it's taking any pleasure in her paranoia or her mental you know state or her pain it, n- it never feels like that like it always makes it makes me feel watching it like my head is about to crumble in just with sheer fear and paranoia like it never feels like i'm enjoying it mm-hmm. i think the last thing i kind of want to wrap up on is just one little uh easter egg i i noticed where there's a few times in the 2020 film that i realized that there was nods to the original costume the best one was when Cecilia first gets to the hospital, we see a patient on a on a gurney get rolled out, and it looks like I don't know if they're a burn victim or something like that, but they've got bandages all over their face, and you can barely see any facial features. And it was just so reminiscent <laughs> of the original costume. I was like, "Oh, that's awesome!" <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like it's it's weird for a movie to be about a man who's invisible, and the design of that character is iconic in a way mm-hmm. um i think it, it was marriage story the the, the noah bombag movie from last year that adam driver is in that dressed as the, the invisible man yeah that was a great halloween costume it made me want to do that one too 
Definitely. But it's it's weird that the, the character's invisible and yet the costume design of it is so recognizable. Mm-hmm. I think that was a, a good discussion about uh, the similarities and differences. I, I really appreciate you coming on, Callum, and, uh, and sharing your horror expertise of these two films. Uh, expert expertise is probably a strong word but thank you anyway <laughs> <laughs> now people probably heard your voice on the show a couple times you first uh sent in a voicemail for my halloween recommendations episode last fall and you recommended some really good horror films and then you were also on the best films of the decade episodes that i did uh you you submitted some clips for that and so it's nice that we can finally actually have a proper conversation and a real pairing between us yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially with, with you know everything that's going on, can't get out of the house, so might as well do something. So it's nice to nice to be on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So your show, as I mentioned, scare introducing uh, is a horror theme show. What uh, what do you have going on? I know you've just completed a series, and uh, what was that? And what are you working on next? Yeah, we just uh, we just completed the the Wreck franchise, the Spanish zombie horror franchise. Uh, we did a little bonus episode of the American remake, which is Quarantine, and it has its own sequel, Quarantine Two. Given the you know the nature of the times we live in, it seemed appropriate, and so we've just started a new mini series. We've done one episode. It's the Omen, so we're doing the Omen franchise. Interesting. Well, that's really great. So if you're a fan of those films, make sure you check it out. What's the best way to uh, find your work or follow you? Uh, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. That's probably the best way to follow us. It's Scare Traducing. It's a portmanteau of Scare and Introducing. So it's just Scare Traducing. Uh, we're on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, all the usual stuff. Well, great. I'll make sure to share those. Once again, thank you so much for joining me today. All right. Thanks for having me again. So thank you so much for listening. You can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at ContraZoomPod. Or send me an email, ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of these two films. Have you seen the original one? Have you seen the new one? You can rent the new one digitally right now. And I'm sure it's going to be more widely available in the next few months for everyone to see. I want to thank Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music, Stephanie Pryor for the graphic, and of course, Aesthetic Magazine for presenting the show. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.